I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. And joining me today is Dr. Peter Grinspoon, MD. His book is Seeing Through the Smoke, a Cannabis Specialist Untangles the Truth About Marijuana. One in seven Americans uses some sort of CBD product. 94% of Americans support legislation of medical marijuana and 69% want total legalization. Whether it's the hard-dying, fear-mongering lies spun by the war on drugs and other prohibition campaigns, or the utopian daydreams of long-time stoners and evangelists, we're still confused about the leaf that we have been using for at least 5,000 years. Peter Greenspoon, physician and cannabis expert, draws from a wealth of scientific research, clinical practice, and personal experience to demystify marijuana. He's a primary care physician and cannabis specialist at Massachusetts General Hospital and an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School. He appears regularly as an expert on Good Morning America, NPR, NBC Nightly uh, Nightly News, and uh, is quoted frequently in the New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe, and uh, the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the show, Dr. Greenspoon. Nice to have you on. Thanks for having me. Well, you have all those credentials, so everyone really is going to listen to what you have to say. Harvard Medical School, Mass General Hospital, marijuana, and and as I read in the intro, it is so true. We're still all confused about, is it good for you? Is it not good for you? Uh, we hear all these conflicting kind, you know, stuff in the news and in the media, and yet now when I'm in New York City and I'm there most of the time, walking down the street, all this cannabis stores. So give us, what is the truth? What are some of these myths and what is the real scientific truth and research concerning uh, marijuana, its, its, its use or overuse? Well, generally speaking, um, marijuana or, or cannabis is uh, correctly perceived to be a relatively less toxic alternative to many of the pharmaceuticals that we're constantly bombarded with. I mean, I bombard people all the time. I've been a primary care doctor for 25 years. But cannabis offers an alternative for the pharmaceuticals for some conditions such as insomnia, anxiety, pain control, uh, you know, anxiety, uh, chemotherapy-induced nausea, vomiting, people with multiple sclerosis find it really helpful. Now, it doesn't work for everybody, and it certainly isn't without its potential harms. You know, I'm not a big fan of using cannabis in people who are pregnant or breastfeeding, because we just don't know that it's safe. Uh, Teenagers, if possible, should avoid cannabis because it's thought to be detrimental to the development of the teenage brain. I mean, um, it can destabilize people with a history of psychosis, like bipolar or schizophrenia. So there are certainly people that shouldn't use cannabis or who, if they use it, should use it very, very, very carefully. But generally speaking, the harms have been largely exaggerated. And again, there are ways to use any substance in a more or less safe manner, but people are finding that if they use cannabis in a sensible manner, they can really help displace the use of many of these other pharmaceuticals, you know, your Ambien's, your opiates, your benzodiazepines, your medications that are more dangerous. So we really see a lot of opportunity for harm reduction with the use of cannabis. 
we, as you say, okay, we can see the the benefits of harm reduction, but it's really, isn't it? Is is our attitude towards cannabis? I mean, we watch on on television advertising all of these medications, and then, uh, you know, the disclaimers at the end of the the advertisement are. are terrifying but yet we <laughs> still yeah. take the drugs right and yet we won't you know cannabis as you just described i'm not going to say it all over again but is far less toxic but it, we have to get out of that mindset how do we do that i guess well the mindset's the mindset's been sort of you know fabricated created i mean the pharmaceutical companies want to sell pharmaceuticals so they've been very much on the anti can't side of every single legalization campaign. They've been arguing and trying to exaggerate how dangerous cannabis is because what they wanted the pharmaceutical companies is to have cannabis still be illegal, yet you'd have to buy your cannabis-based medicines from Pfizer or, you know, Insys or whatever the pharmaceutical company is. So they have been against it because they know the benefits of cannabinoids and they wanted to sell them you know, they don't make much money when people grow it on their own or, or treat, their, treat themselves or just buy it in the dispensary. But interestingly, the pharmaceutical companies, now that, you know, the, the, the bag, the cat seems out of the bag with um, legalization, and it looks like we've already got legalization for medical in 38 states and full legalization now in 23 states, uh, the pharmaceutical companies are sort of taking a, if you can't beat them, join them attitude, and they're really developing a lot of cannabis-based medications and really trying to take advantage of the benefits. So there's been a big change. Um, but yes, our society is extraordinarily dependent on pharmaceuticals. You could argue that it's much more dependent than many other societies on pharmaceuticals. And you just have to ask yourself, could a lot of these be replaced by, a, again, a relatively non-toxic, not a harmless, but a relatively non-toxic plant-based alternative that people, you know, makes people a little bit relaxed, a little bit happy. It can be addictive, but it's not nearly as addictive as alcohol or tobacco. It's overall, it's fairly safe if you use it, if you use it sensibly. And, you know, it's hard to argue that a lot of these pharmaceuticals are safer. I mean, you look at something like pain, uh, the alternatives for pain, the non-steroidals give people heart attacks, ulcers, they wreck your kidneys. Nobody wants to be an opiate. So for the chronic pain that, you know, Americans are getting a little older, a little portlier, their knees, their backs, their hips are going out, cannabis is a much more appropriate alternative, in my option, than many of these heavy-duty pharmaceuticals that, you know, people think that because they're over-the-counter, they're safe. But, you know, ibuprofen is a deadly weapon. I mean, you just have to look at these things for uh, in context, and the cannabis looks better and better. So, okay, ibuprofen is a, uh, what did you say, a deadly weapon? Let, let's. How is it a deadly weapon? And as oh, opposed to with taking... ibuprofen, with the non-steroidals that people yeah. use for for the chronic pain that we all have. Like, yeah. first of all, ten thousand people a year die every every year just from a heart attack. People don't realize that non-steroidals can give you a heart attack, and then they also can give you a bleeding ulcer. I mean, I think a lot of people understand that because you take too much ibuprofen, your stomach starts hurting. It gives you gastritis. It really irritates the lining of your stomach. And then if you don't die from a heart attack or an ulcer, uh, I've seen so many people, and there are millions of people in this country whose kidneys are slowly dying in their 50s, 60s, and 70s from taking so many of your non-steroidals. These are your ibuprofens, your Advils, your Diclofenacs, your Aleves, your Napersons. 
these things really, really hurt your kidneys, which cannabis doesn't actually hurt your kidneys. So I'm convinced that not only can we help alleviate the opiate crisis by using cannabis and CBD and THC instead of opiates, but we can really help save a lot of kidneys and prevent a lot of heart attacks by using cannabis a lot earlier uh, with many of these patients for chronic pain. What's the responsibility of the physicians? Because most people will say, well, I go to my doctor, I tell him or her what my problem is, and I'm there for 15 minutes, barely, maybe not. And automatically, they just write a prescription for those medications or even telling us, you know, some of it's over the counter, just go get that. And the average patient patient, uh, listens to their doctor and um, begins taking these drugs. Because, I mean, the responsibility, I guess I'm asking for doctors to recommend cannabis as opposed to these other right well right the the doctors bear a a huge responsibility uh for educating themselves about cannabis and for educating their patients about cannabis my my father actually was a very famous and legendary cannabis scholar at harvard medical school um lester grinspoon and what he said is that doctors have been historically both victims of and perpetrators of all of the misinformation about cannabis during the last half century during the war on drugs. So doctors have really been on the wrong side of the war on drugs. In my book, um, which just came out, uh, Doctors Are Supposed to Do No Harm, I have a chapter called Do Be No Harm, about how the doctors have been on the wrong side of the war on drugs. So I think doctors really sort of need to apologize and educate themselves about cannabis and give patients a, a realistic view of cannabis. What are the harms, what are the benefits, and how can this help you get off many of the other pharmaceuticals. So I just, I don't think the doctors have been, done a great job. I mean, interestingly, when it was criminalized in 1937, when marijuana was criminalized, uh, doctors freely prescribed it. And one of the leading voices against criminalization was the American Medical Association. They testified in 1937 against criminalizing cannabis because they knew it was a safer medication that they were using very freely. But under very severe pressure from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which was the predecessor to the Drug Enforcement Agency, the doctors sort of wimped out and flipped sides and started spreading misinformation. And now they're, they're getting back on board, but it's a very slow process. Um, but I really think that we need a Manhattan-like project to educate doctors about cannabis so that they could sensibly help their patients. Because what's happening now is that the patients just aren't asking their doctors about it because the doctors don't know anything helpful. So what are they doing at Harvard Medical School? I mean, Harvard... Well, you know, Harvard Harvard is Harvard. They're doing some research. You know, they they were not very friendly to my dad with all his cannabis stuff over the last 50 years. There's actually an article in the student newspaper, the Harvard Crimson, called Grinspoon Reconsidered about my dad, about how they sort of persecuted him for taking such a progressive view, not only on cannabis, but he also came out in favor of using psychedelics and psychiatry in the 1970s, uh, 40 years before his time. And now we're doing that everywhere, but he got in a lot of trouble for it at Harvard. But, you know, Harvard will do what Harvard does. Harvard will be sort of conservative about it. And then at some point, the societal winds will shift enough and Harvard will say, we do medical cannabis. We're the best at it. We've always been in favor of this. (laughs) So, (laughs) I think Harvard is still a little bit on the conservative side. They haven't bothered me. They've been accepting, but they haven't been pretty particularly supportive either. They've been sort of agnostic about it. But once there's enough research 
and enough evidence, Harvard will flip and they will be very, very, very enthusiastic about this. And then they can start painting my dad back into the photos. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's enough research? What needs to be done going forward? And also then convincing doctors and government and and just uh, the average person, consumer, patient that it's okay, that marijuana is a choice and a good choice uh, in, in lots of situations we've been talking about. Well, it's interesting. People debate over what constitutes legitimate data. I mean, doctors tend to like these very specific types of studies called randomized controlled trials, where you blind the patient, you blind the scientist as to what is the active ingredient, and people don't know what they're getting. And that's a way to determine whether it's the placebo effect or whether whatever you're testing is really effective or not. But it's very difficult to do the kind of studies with cannabis because cannabis does about five things at once. I mean, the studies that the doctors look at usually have one metric at a time. Does it help with pain? Whereas if you're treating someone with cannabis for fibromyalgia or some pain syndrome, it could help with the pain. It could help with the perception of the pain. It could help with the anxiety about the pain. It could help with the anxiety in general. It could help with your sleep. And it could help with your quality of life and your appetite. It could help seven different things. And these type, all these different metrics don't show up that well um, on these randomized controlled trials. Furthermore, it's very difficult to blind cannabis. They're having trouble with this with the psychedelics research as well. People tend to tell know if they've been given a psychoactive component as opposed to a neutral component. So people can guess if they've been part of the blinded part of the study or not. And that makes it so you can't really tell if it's a placebo effect. So it's a little bit of a hard thing to study, but there's this whole new type of data called real-world data or real-world evidence that people are using all over the place in medicine, particularly with cannabis research and with research for psychedelics where they're studying patient-recorded outcomes or data from patient registries. And even though it's not a randomized controlled trial, which is considered the gold standard, it's very, very, very helpful evidence in terms of showing benefit or harm, um, what it does work for or doesn't work for, for different cannabis preparations. So I think that the days where people are saying we don't have enough evidence the cannabis works are behind us. I mean, we have tons of evidence, both, <clears throat> as I mentioned, the randomized control trials and the real-world evidence, not to mention the millions of people that are using it with benefit, like clearly getting benefit from it. So I think it's really a question of adopting it in a safe and sustainable manner. Uh, people are using it anyways. The most important thing, from my perspective, is open communication between doctors and patients. And, you know, because there can be medicine interactions, there can be changes in your anesthesia requirements if you're a heavy cannabis user, which is not a big deal as long as the anesthesiologist knows about it and he or she can adjust. So my big thing is that doctors, no matter what they think of cannabis, whether they're pro or anti, they need to be able to create a climate in which the patient can comfortably discuss their cannabis use. This is true for all other drugs, by the way. If you can't discuss it, you kill people. Um, make a healthy, comfortable climate so the patients can tell their doctors about their cannabis use and they could all work together as helpful partners. I think that's by far the safest way to go about it.
I would agree with you. And as someone who did many years of hospital social work, that doesn't happen. Patients are afraid to say, <laughs> I mean, that it sounds good, but they won't tell you or they won't tell the physician or who, the nurse or whomever or the social worker even uh, like how, what kinds of drugs they're taking. Uh, so that is an issue. That is a big issue. You're right. The being honest with your physician. I mean, if the doctor and yeah. the nurse has a, a good enough attitude, I think people yeah. will communicate with them. Yeah, but I think some doctors are they're great physicians in terms of you know the med, you know purely medical. But when it comes to the emotional connection between the patient and making them feel comfortable, not always not so good. Those two things don't always go together, do they? I don't. Oh, know. I much, I, yeah. I agree with you completely. I mean, medicine, as much as anything, if not more than anything, is a team sport. And you know, I help physicians in distress. At a previous job, I was a worked for a physician health service. Um, helping doctors who needed were in trouble, and the doctors that couldn't communicate, they couldn't interact, they couldn't empathize, did not do very well these days. I mean, I think that the medical schools and the nursing schools have to focus more on like basic people skills and less on grades if they want to get good caregivers. Yeah. Well, I actually was part of a, a, a Albany Medical College has a clinical competency program, which now I think is pretty widespread in a lot of the medical colleges where you train the medical students how to interact with patients and they're actually filmed and critiqued in terms of these simulations between patient and doctor. Very effective. I don't know if they have it. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I mean, yeah. I always say, why not just, you know, uh, admit nice pro-social people in the first place. Like if they go to the Peace Corps, you know, they're a good person. <laughs> so, but it, it, yes, it, teaching people how to be nice is better than not teaching people how to be nice. What about, and you mentioned this or you touched on this because now with the aging population, I, I would say I'm part of the aging population and part of that population who during the seventies was doing recreational marijuana, not a lot of it, but that was, and now that population is aging with all of the, uh, as you, you know, hips and knees and all the stuff you get as you age, uh, are, are much more, I guess, much more sympathetic to taking or to cannabis, yeah, or to medical marijuana. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The the demographic is, yeah. of cannabis users that's growing most rapidly by far is older Americans. Um, it's, it's doubling every couple of years. And it's because as you get older, you accumulate diagnoses and you accumulate prescriptions. And polypharmacy is a huge problem. I mean, I've patients in my 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, they're on like 20 medications. They're very mm -hmm. dangerous, very hard to manage, very expensive. And as I mentioned before, cannabis can do several different things at once. It could help you with your anxiety, your insomnia, your pain, uh, your quality of life, your appetite. And people are finding that using medicinal cannabis, you know, and you want to use it in someone older in a gentle way. You want to start low and go slow and get them started in a very comfortable, gentle manner. But again, there are very responsible ways to do this. People are finding that medical cannabis is a very good way to alleviate the problem of polypharmacy. And, and people are enjoying cutting down their medications. And you look at what we talked about before, like for example, sleep. There are no safe sleep medications for older people. Literally, they're all dangerous. They all affect your memory, they affect your balance, they can call, cause falls. They can cause dementia. And I would argue that a low dose of 
CBD with perhaps a little bit of THC mixed in, maybe via a tincture under the tongue. Nobody's talking about smoking in the elderly. Doctors don't usually recommend smoking. Is often a much safer alternative than the Ambien's, the Trazodones, the Valiums that we're giving our our older Americans to sleep. I think cannabis can be a much safer alternative for many of these conditions. So I think the elderly, uh, the older Americans are picking up very quickly that cannabis can make them more comfortable and be a safer alternative for them. So it's been astounding to see the explosion of growth in different cannabis-based medications in older Americans. And many of them that I take care of are doing really, really well. So uh, assisted living facilities, uh, those kinds of, uh, you know, nursing homes, um, what's the risk? Well, they're fighting with the problem that there's still federal illegality. And they worry about losing their federal funding. I believe California just came out with a bill saying hospitals can use uh, cannabinoids. People in the hospital and in nursing homes can use cannabinoids without losing, worried about federal funding. But I know that my hospital, the last thing they want to do is yank away cannabis from like an elderly patient or a dying cancer patient. Yet at the same time, due to the federal illegality, they're worried about getting in trouble. It's very unlikely that they get in trouble, but they could get in trouble because they're using a federal class one controlled substance. So we really, and President Biden's talking about rescheduling cannabis. And the minute he reschedules it away from schedule one, this is not going to be as much of a problem. But we do have the problem that people use cannabis and they do really well. Then they go to the hospital and they're not allowed to use it in the hospital. and Nobody knows what to do. What about, I mean, you talked to, you just said, uh, I just wanted you to address this because, you know, the polypharmaceuticals. So you've got patients taking 10, 15 different kinds of pharmaceuticals, drugs, prescribed medication. What are the pharmaceutical companies going to do if they're not selling those drugs? Let's say, you know, the cannabis does the trick and eventually is <laughs> begins to take over in well, terms of Well, first of, of all, yeah. right. <laughs> First, what they did is try to block legalization, which is I mentioned before. So they were on the anti-side of every legalization campaign, not because they thought cannabis was bad or harmful or dangerous. They just didn't want the competition. Very, very hypocritical. Now they're all frantically trying to develop their cannabis-based medications that they're hoping will have an edge on regular cannabis. Um, So there's a ton of drug development and they're trying to come up with different preparations that people find very convenient and easy to use. I mean, I think that they're going to have some success and that other people are just going to stick to the same old cannabis that we've used for 5,000 years. Um, but it is really interesting. A, a study came out in um, 2016 from the Journal of Health Economics after Colorado legalized cannabis for recreational purposes. The Medicare Part D spending went down across the board for every single category of drug that you could treat with medical cannabis. So the people, patients, instead of waiting to see their doctors, it's really hard to get into your doctor these days, and waiting for their insurance companies to pay for whatever medications their insurance company may or may not pay for, patients were just getting cannabis and using it for their pain, for their anxiety, for their insomnia. People were really treating themselves. So I think... Uh, the in, the pharmaceutical companies were right to oppose it because they're going to lose a lot of money. They were ethically wrong, but sort of financially right to oppose it. But I think the health insurance companies are going to be under a lot of pressure to pay for medical cannabis because right now they don't pay for it. 
And that's a big problem for patients. Many of my patients, I work in a inner city clinic and they're either on fixed incomes because they're very poor or they're on fixed incomes because they're elderly and they're stuck on, you know, social security and Medicare and so forth. And they're having trouble affording it. And it's just crazy that the insurance companies are making so much money by people switching off all these other pharmaceuticals, but are getting away with not paying for the medical cannabis, hiding behind the federal illegality. So I think that the insurance companies are going to be under withering pressure to pay for some of this medical cannabis so that the patients can afford it. What do you think, last question, because we only have a couple minutes left, but how do you, what do you think the impact of your book is going to be? Oh, well, I'm hoping my book brings all sides together. My book, Seeing Through the Smoke, is a very panoramic view. It talks about my brother Danny, when he had cancer, he fought an unsuccessful battle with cancer, but how cannabis helped him maintain his weight and be able to like come down and play with his little brothers after chemotherapy. It talks about my dad's advocacy, and, and it really talks about how it could help people, both medically and, you know, cannabis also helps people in these sort of gray zone between medical and recreational. It helps people connect with other people and really um, appreciate their sexuality and their spirituality, and it helps them be mindfully in the present, helps them with music. So uh, cannabis really helps people's quality of life. So my book is going to help people use cannabis, hopefully in a safe and effective manner to maximize health, maximize joy, and minimize side effects and problems. And, and I've been talking to Dr. Peter Greenspoon, MD, Seeing Through the Smoke, a Cannabis Specialist Untangles the Truth About Marijuana. That's the title of his book. Okay, so tell us, uh, given all that it can do for us, where can we get the book and where can we access more information about uh, and your work and what you're doing? Oh, sure. Well, the book's on Amazon. It's in many of the bookstores. My website is just petergrinspoon.com. Grinspoon is smelled, spelled uh, grin like smile, spoon like fork. So if Peter, people go to petergrinspoon.com, I'm happy to answer questions. There's a contact me button. There's a link to events, to talks, to other um, you know podcasts and stuff. And uh, it's very easy to get the book. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for the great conversation. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 